Welcome back to the Clean Water Pod, the show about the challenges and successes in restoring and protecting water quality. My name's Jeff Burkus, and I'm talking to dedicated professionals across the country to build an understanding of how policy and science work together to meet the goals of the Clean Water Act for fishable, swimmable, and drinkable water quality in our nation's waters. I'm joined by my colleague Sarah Schwartz from the EPA to help define a couple of terms for our show today. Sarah, are you ready to talk about the last program of the Clean Water Act, the Section 319 or non-point source pollution program? Yes, I am. Thanks, Jeff. Yeah, so 319 just refers to Section 319 of the Clean Water. We're not very creative on some of the naming conventions here, but a lot of people will just call it non-point program. So let's start there. Let's define non-point source pollution. Sure. So non-point source pollution is pollution that can't be traced to one single location, but rather is the result of rain and snowmelt picking up pollution as it flows over land. As water flows across a landscape, it picks up pollution from streets, yards, fields, and carries it into a water body. And that water might have everything from oil and grease from cars to sediment and excess fertilizer. So in the previous episode, we talked about point sources. A lot of point sources are permitted, right? Like, so, so there was very specific talk about point sources and how we address those. This is basically the opposite of that. So if you, if you are able to define point sources, non-point is basically everything else, right? Yeah, the, di- the more diffuse uh, sources, I guess, is one way of thinking of it. So when we think about non-point sources of pollution, what does that lead to in the environment? Do you have any examples of that that we should talk about? Yeah, another term I wanted to share is algal bloom. So an algal bloom is an overgrowth of algae in the water body due to excess nutrients, nutrients being nitrogen and phosphorus, which can enter the water body from non-point source pollution as stormwater runoff and snowmelt. And when this happens, there can be a negative chain of reactions. The excess algae blocks sunlight from getting into the water. Eventually, the algae decays and sucks up the dissolved oxygen, and the plants and animals in the water suffer as a result. And in some cases, the algae itself can be toxic to people, and that's called a harmful algal bloom. And I know that sounds scary and sad, as the environmental field sometimes can be, so I did want to share, you know, some ways you can help. And EPA actually has a webpage that has resources on how you can help monitor water bodies for algal blooms, report uh, suspected blooms, or work on reducing nutrient pollution in and around your own home. And I'm realizing now maybe this is just an elaborate way for me to give a PSA to pick up your your pet waste. <laughs> but uh, that website is just epa.gov slash nutrient pollution slash harmful algal blooms. That's great. And it's also a great tease because next season, we're going to dive into specific themes and we're going to start by talking about nutrients and nutrients, uh, a nutrient overload in lakes can lead to these algal blooms that you talk about. So a really great teaser for season two and what we'll be talking about there. Um, So what else do we need to know about the 319 program? Because Sarah, this is a different setup than the other programs in the Clean Water Act. This is a grant making program. This is just a completely different design. So how is the 319 non-point program set up? Yeah, so under Section 319B of the Clean Water Act, states, tribes, and territories are required to develop a non-point source management program plan with goals and milestones that are updated every five years. 
And once they have an approved plan in place, they are eligible for 319 grants. And there's a wide range of projects these grants are used for, but generally they're used for on the ground projects that help capture and treat stormwater in both urban and rural settings. For example, stream stabilization to reduce erosion, uh, better managing how manure is stored on farms or using integrated pest management to reduce the use of pesticides. Yeah, so really good project examples that are rolled up into a project plan. So you could see a, a water body that has an impairment like we talked about in previous episodes. They have Maybe they have permitted sources. NPDES program is taking care of those. But for everything else, then you need a, a 319 non-point plan. And then inside of that plan may have many different types of projects that would include some of the examples that you listed. Yeah, exactly. And I like that you linked back to the NPDES program. It's just a good example of how all of these different programs need to work together to have a holistic approach to uh, restoring and protecting water bodies. Absolutely. I think that the 319 nonpoint program is one of the more interesting programs. You have to have a little bit of creativity and to help us understand nonpoint pollution better and some of these projects and, and examples. I pulled a couple of really great professionals from the 319 program from across the country. Steve Conradi from Iowa DNR is someone that I know very well because I've worked with him for a number of years and he, he works in the 319 program as well as Michaela Lambert from Kentucky. And these two individuals have really great knowledge and ideas on how to solve a lot of these non-point source pollution issues. And I'm really excited to have you guys hear what they have to say. So without further wait, here's my interview with Steve and Michaela. I am pleased today to be welcomed by Steve Conradi from the state of Iowa and Michaela Lambert from Kentucky. Guys, welcome to the Clean Water Pod. Thanks, Thanks for having for us. So, Steve, I want to start with you. Tell me about yourself, what your background is, and how you got into water quality work. Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I've worked for the state of Iowa off and on uh, for our Department of Natural Resources uh, pretty much since I left undergrad in college, you know, which is 2008. And so I've been kind of rattling around uh, the Department of Natural Resources for a while. I really got my start in fisheries. We are maybe different than a lot of other states in that we combine kind of our environmental and our recreational uses of the natural resources together into the one department of natural resources. So, uh, you know, our water quality section and our, our fishery section are in the same house. So I started in fisheries, did a lot of that in undergrad um, and, and really enjoyed the work and wanted to do that kind of professionally. So I started there then got a master's degree in the middle that sort of pushed me more towards the water quality angle. Uh, and then just got really invested in, in protecting that water quality for the state of Iowa. Protecting water quality is key to protecting fisheries. So from my experience with fisheries and, and my passion for working in fisheries, I realized that one of the best ways to make a difference in, in the fisheries world is to improve water quality. So I focused on that uh, kind of towards the tail end of my master's degree and uh, then started with that in 2016 when I first met you, Jeff. Absolutely. So, uh, Michaela, what about you in Kentucky? Are you are you a Kentucky native? Where did you go to school and how did you find yourself in water quality work? Yeah. So my story is actually not so different, although I originally hail from the state of Vermont, um, but I spent much of that time that I was there, you know, playing in creeks, wetlands, lakes, fostering that love for water that so many of us who work in this field started with. That's how I started things. I did, however, 
always have this love for horses. So I did end up in Kentucky. Um, in 2012, I moved to Kentucky to pursue my bachelor's at the University of Kentucky. And while I was there, I kind of decided I wanted to focus on wildlife biology. I'd always had an interest. You know, I'd had that love of freshwater, love of the forest, and kind of wanted to pursue that. Um, in that process, though, it was my sophomore year, I think it was. I was looking for research opportunities and the opening that I found was in the freshwater and riparian ecology lab, specifically looking at herpetofauna or reptiles and amphibians. So by default, I kind of became a reptile and amphibian nerd. I did much of my undergraduate work in that lab, um, working in stream systems, wetland systems, forest systems. And I really kind of learned to appreciate, um, you know, like Steve just said, that in order to create the best environment for those organisms, you need healthy and clean waterways. And it's those same healthy and clean waterways that people depend on. And so that's kind of where I started that process. And so by grad school, I knew that I wanted to stick with freshwater in some aspect, as well as probably some amphibian work. So I stayed with the University of Kentucky and my master's project uh, partnered with the Monongahela National Forest in West Virginia as well as green forest work and the Appalachian Regional Reforestation Initiative. And we did some work investigating these created wetland habitats on these reforested surface mines for amphibian utilization. And so that further uh, kind of inspired my love for particularly wetland systems in that case. So upon leaving graduate school, I believe that was 2019, um, I started with the Kentucky Division of Water in the non-point source section, actually, I've been here for about four years now. I started as a river basin coordinator in the far eastern portion of the state, working with different partners to generate capacity and project interest. This was an area that had been um, historically not staffed for about 12 years, so it was kind of starting from scratch there. Um, but I really loved the possibilities of the 319 program and what it could accomplish. And so this February, I actually just started in the role as supervisor of the Nonpoint Source and Basin Team section. So that is how I got here. That's great. Well, congratulations on the promotion. And let's let's talk about this program. So this podcast has worked all the way through water quality standards, water quality monitoring to the impaired waters list to total maximum daily loads. And then we've already covered the NIPTES program, the, the permitting program for point sources. So now we're on non-point sources of pollution, what is called the Section 319 program. A lot of just shorthanded people, people will say 319 program. That refers to the part of the Clean Water Act where the this is laid out, where uh, funding can go towards projects um, to help out with non-point sources of pollution. But Steve, what, let's start there. What do you consider non-point sources of pollution oh man um so i can i kind of think of them uh as stuff that's coming off of the landscape and not necessarily out of a pipe there are better you know formal definitions that include you know things that aren't permitted i think is always the way that you put it um to me and i, I think it, it did it did help it make sense um epa you know kind of follows that that rule as well although there are certain permitted sources like septic tanks that they sort of consider under the th uh, section 319 program. So there are some, you know, weird 
outliers uh, or or sub bullets, you could say, to the the three nineteen programs in general. Uh, but in my in my mind, non point sources is pollution pollutants that are coming off of the landscape uh, via mostly runoff from from rain events and whatnot. So that's kind of how I I conceptualize it and and sort of share that with with our partners that we work with. It's sort of the the simple view. But then when you get into the the legal definitions you have to have to go a little deeper so that's why i always have those you know extra bullets in the back of my head like the permit uh side of things and um you know the septic tanks being the outlier so michaela let me ask you about the program so you're new to your role but you've been working within the 319 program for for a little while now so what do you see as the basics of this program as you deliver it to kentucky sure so the 319 program essentially was an amendment to the Clean Water Act where they established, you know, the 319 grant program at, the, at its basics. But um, for Kentucky, what it really means is that we have a flexible framework in which to utilize grant funds to abate non-point source solution and how we have prioritized. And we've done this through prioritizing uh, watershed areas, different areas around our state that we know are high priority and have capacity to do work, as well as through um, prioritizing pollution or different types of projects, depending on uh, what we need to get done. So Steve, what would you say is sort of the basic fundamentals of uh, the programming in Iowa? So are there are there planning efforts? Uh, how do you utilize other information to make your decision making? Like lay out for me how uh, an area is able to be eligible for a grant and how that they use that money wisely. Yeah. I think, you know, we were probably fairly similar to Kentucky in that we have some priorities that we sort of have in mind whenever, uh, you know, trying to approach a new project. But typically the one that kind of comes to the top as the most important to address right away is the local buy-in or the local capacity to take on a project. We could, you know, decide that we wanted to work with a certain watershed and, and have the funding set aside. And if there's no local partner that w is willing to take that on or, uh, even the local landowners are willing to implement on the ground. It's a voluntary program, uh, you know, in a lot of ways. And so, you know, the pr the projects can't happen without that local interest. But certainly we start with kind of a seed idea. You know, we, we develop the TMDLs, which is your job when you were working with the DNR. And uh, we take that that set of TMDLs and then from there derive, you know, okay, we think we can make a project happen in this watershed. Um, and, and so a lot of it is either addressing a problem that we uh, want to address. So most recently we added uh, the, the North Raccoon River uh, watershed project. That one was identified as one of America's endangered rivers, um, you know, and so that drew some attention to it, right? And we also have strong collaboration with our Department of Agriculture in Iowa uh, the, uh, and, and their programs that work on water quality they were going to be investing quite a bit there. So it was sort of like this nexus of, of different cooperators that were deciding to focus on uh, improving the North Raccoon River. And, and you know, that one's primarily a, a nutrient-based issue, nitrate in, in our case. Um, but we have other projects where we've decided, you know, we want to work there because it's a biological impairment that we think uh, we could potentially fix in a relatively short amount of time. Um, you know, with your guidance uh, from the TMDL program, more specifically, uh, my colleague, Jason Palmer, who kind of goes out and does some of the sampling work at these sites and says, 
yeah, this one, you know, I think we can make it work. And we've already been talking with landowners that that are interested in, in making that happen. Uh, and then from there, you know, we build out, we, we, we gather in those partners like the Iowa Department of Agriculture and Land Stewardship uh, to, to collaborate on the project and, and, you know, hire a local watershed coordinator, which we find is very important to making uh, any long running watershed project work. And then for our program, our big thing is making sure we're ready for the long haul on some of these. Uh, we have impairments that we've worked on the same project for 15 years and seen, you know, either a delisting or at least we're making progress towards it uh, at the end of that 15 years. That's a long time. We understand that. But um, having willingness in the local capacity and interest to buy in for that long uh, is something that needs to be fostered and, and built in, in, uh, quite often. So um, that that's kind of our, our key point there. But, you know, we really do... Um, you know, look at our list of watersheds and, and Iowa has quite a daunting list on the impaired waters list for one thing, uh, and find areas where we know that, uh, we have local partners that are, that are ready to go and, and, and want to be passionate about improving that water. Michaela, Steve talked about having local buy-in as being an incredibly important piece. What are the other pieces that you see pieces of information that you really like to see before you commit to a, a watershed area? So I think having that local buy-in, of course, but with that, you also need to have some sort of information in terms of data, whether that's data that we as Division of Water have gone out and collected, or we plan to go out and collect, or sometimes we have citizen monitoring groups or community monitoring groups that have gone out and identified that they may have a potential issue in their stream and they've worked together as a group to then um, bring together that capacity. It's also really important for them to have thought about partnerships in their area. Sometimes the work that needs to be done is not limited to what 319 can do. So, um, for example, I worked with a group um, called the Friends of the Tug Fork. Um, they are a two-state, multi-state group um, in West Virginia and Kentucky. And they have partnerships not only um, with their local city and county officials, to do things like work in their local parks to promote environmental literacy, but they also have partnerships uh, now with the health department and West Virginia DNR and Kentucky uh, 319 program to help them implement that work. So they are just starting their watershed planning process. They're working on writing a watershed plan right now, West Virginia side first, and then they're moving into the Kentucky side. But together they've started just as a fishing group turned into a group that's now focused on improving their local environment and community and are now in the process of pursuing watershed planning in two states. So it's a pretty impressive effort. And those three things working together are really important. Michaela mentioned volunteer monitoring. Sometimes we call that participatory monitoring, same idea. Volunteer monitoring is going to be different than monitoring that's collected by a professional organization that's collected by the Clean Water Act programs that we've talked about already. The water quality monitoring section um, you know, is going to be collecting data specific uh, to, to what they're looking at. The TMDL section may be collecting data as well. You, you may get data collected from, from permitted facilities as well that, as part of their permit, right? So so there's a lot of different water quality monitoring happening. This is the first time we've talked about volunteer monitoring, and that kind of brings up this concept of citizen science. So what about that adds to the richness of the data layer for, for you guys, the, the local buy-in? Like kind of talk about volunteer monitoring and what citizen science can do for these projects. 
Sure. Yeah. Iowa has a pretty long history of citizen water science. Um, we haven't been able to support that program to the same level that we did, uh, you know, kind of in the, in the late nineties, early two thousands, but you know, it's still out there. We're still kind of trying to foster that interest in, in that volunteer monitoring or citizen science. Uh, like you said, we tend to focus on our, uh, the data that we collect professionally. We've got credible data laws that kind of impact what we are able to utilize from the citizen science, uh, sector, you know, in our, listings of impairments and things like that. So we tend to focus more now on the the professionally collected uh, information and data. But at the same time, uh, that citizen science piece is is a really valuable education tool and outreach tool, we find. Um, so yeah, I mean, when people are getting involved in, in sampling their local water body and taking an interest in that, they tend to be more informed about water quality issues in general, more passionate for cleaning up their watersheds and, and, and waterways, uh, and more ready to work with us on some of that. There's also a, a large contingent of farmers, producers, landowners that are interested in making sure that the practices that they're installing on their land with some of their own investments uh, and investments of, of federal funds in particular, in our case, they want to make sure those are working. So they they like to test those those practices for effectiveness. Honestly, they may not contribute that information to a, a public database. You know, it's kind of private information, especially if they're taking uh, you know tile water samples and stuff like that. But we do hear frequently that they want to do that and they want to do it because they want to know that what they're doing is making a difference. And so that is a huge area of citizen science that we try to foster when we can, because we know that those landowners that see the effectiveness of, you know, one practice they put in are going to want to put in a second practice, a third, you know, on through and, and see the watershed project to its completion. Uh, and so, so we try to foster that whenever we can. And then also uh, on the local front, you know, we have watershed coordinators, like I said, key components of, of, of all of our watershed projects, and they do some, some monitoring as well. And they do it to supply us with like water samples that we don't have to go out and get. It saves travel time and, and, and whatnot, but also can provide that like event monitoring on a more timely basis. So if there's a rainstorm, for instance, they can go out and sample much quicker than if we had to drive from our capital city or our, our central office. But also what I really think that does for them is, is get them more involved in that process of, of monitoring water uh, understanding their watershed so they can commu communicate that to their uh, customers, for instance, uh, or, or watershed landowners more more uh, realistically and, and kind of say like, well, you know, I do the monitoring at the site and it's improved over the last blah, blah, blah years, you know, by what I see out there. Uh, and so that's a really good thing to do. And they get the results back uh, periodically. We definitely give them a water monitoring sum summary every year. So the watershed coordinators know kind of their hard work out there in the field to collect that information goes to use by us. And then we give that back to them as a summary that they can share with their uh, participant landowners. And their involvement just, I think, gets their head on the right plane for, for speaking about that in public. And they're really our front lines for that education and outreach for each of our watershed projects. So it's a valuable tool for them as well. So I want to talk big picture. And this is kind of interesting because... All of the programs that we have already discussed so far in this podcast were part of the original Clean Water Act construct in 1972, right? So the first episode launched 
on the 50th anniversary day of the passage of the, the signing into law of the Clean Water Act. The 319 program, the non-point source program, came in the, in the amendment, which was in 1987, so 15 years later than the Clean Water Act uh, originally passed. So this is a younger program. So this question that I have asked the other programs, what do you think are the biggest accomplishments in this program in the first 50 years of the Clean Water Act, is actually more, what are the biggest accomplishments of the, the first 35 years? Now, the other episodes have had a little bit more experienced uh, uh, guest speakers. They've been in the programs longer. And so I think it's actually appropriate that we have a couple of guests that are more early career to mid-career uh, to talk about this program since it is a little bit younger. So I know that, Michaela, you can't speak to the first 35 years of the program, but in your experience getting up to speed and running this, what do you see as the, the biggest accomplishments in the first part of the 319 program um, for, for the Clean Water Act? Yeah, and I think even in my four years that I've been here, this has been a continually evolving process. But what we've really seen is that states, including Kentucky, have had the opportunity to really learn how to efficiently and effectively run their programs and how it works best for them. Not every state is structured the same way, but we found a way that works for us and a way that we can prioritize that works for us. Um, we've had a lot of success stories come out of the work that we have done. So we know that what we're doing is impactful and it works. We have data to support that. And so that's something that's been really impactful. Um, we've also worked to develop some really strong partnerships that have helped us to leverage funds and efforts. So partnering with other organizations that are environmentally oriented, like watershed groups and organizations, nonprofits, universities, other government entities, have really helped us to pursue successes. So ultimately, we're more effective when we're working together. And this has allowed Kentucky with 319 funding to run our program in a way that we know is going to meet our own needs. Steve, I want to ask you the same question. I know that you've been around just a little bit longer in Iowa, and you've also had those conversations with personnel that have been in place for longer that are associated with this program. And you've had a chance to go back and look at the long history of some of these projects. And so I want you to speak to the, the history in Iowa that you've seen and maybe um, throughout the Midwest with, with uh, some of your colleagues as well. What do you think are some of the bigger accomplishments that you've seen in the first 35 years? of the 319 program. Yeah, I think, you know, we we often hang our hat on those success stories that, that we've put together. I just, uh, John Iowa's number, we have 26 uh, that we've claimed. So these are, you know, success stories based on delistings uh, of water from waters from the impaired waters list. We certainly continue to hang our hat on those as far as, uh, you know, progress that the programs make. But I think there's there's a little bit more than that in in the the success of the program itself. We are really able to act as as kind of a bridge between uh, different funding sources, different agencies. The 319 program brings a lot of folks together uh, in Iowa, and and folks that don't necessarily share the the same table all that often. Um, and so that's really uh, interesting to talk about water quality and water and improving water quality on those uh, kind of kind of grounds. And so I, I think that our program in particular really prides itself on on being able to cross those interjurisdictional boundaries. Um, you know, I I think Michaela mentioned it earlier that you know she talks about talked about being a watershed basin coordinator. 
Um, that's what we run the same system in Iowa. We are like the only, uh, program that runs on watershed level areas, like our, our, the areas that our individual employees cover. So I'm the Western Iowa basin coordinator. I cover everything that drains to the Missouri river in Iowa. So it's roughly the Western, uh, third of the state more or less. And then I have two colleagues that cover central Iowa and then Northeast Iowa. And so we kind of split up the state evenly from a geographic standpoint, as far as uh, land area, but it follows river basin lines instead of worrying about, you know, county or, or jurisdictional boundaries. And it really helps set the stage for our conversations where, you know, we work with these communities that understand that they're part of a larger system. But we often have to start that conversation for them. They may be thinking of their neat little county line box uh, originally, but we really break them out of that when we start engaging with all the partners that contribute to a watershed's uh, management and, and improvement. Um, and so that's one of the big like points of pride that we have uh, in our program is, is helping people think on that watershed scale rather than uh, being stuck in their their little jurisdictional boxes because humans like to draw straight lines. Nature does not, and and the watershed game is as much uh, you know working with nature uh, as as anything. Uh, so it, it, making people see that um, and how nature works a little bit more than the straight lines of a human drawing on a map, uh, I think is is really one of our legacy pieces that uh, I'm proud to carry forward every day I come and work. I think you bring up a couple of interesting points, Steve. So let's let's start with the success stories, and I think that that's a really good uh, time for us to mention that the EPA website actually has a really great interactive map, and I think there's over 700 success stories that highlight water bodies uh, that different states have worked on with landowners and with interested parties, and they have been able to document improved water quality. Uh, with the help of one of those 319 grants or other funding sources uh, to be able to help remove that impairment. So I would encourage those of you listening to check out our website. We'll link to that and you can see that. And then the the first implementation program, when we talked about the NIPTES program, we're talking about uh, people that write permits for for their state and they're working with facilities. So they're working with other professionals to write those permits. It's a it's a professional to professional relationship. This is a little different in a lot of times because you're going out into communities and you're looking for willing landowners who are not obligated to respond or, or work um, on these projects. And so I, maybe a little bit about the social science aspect of, of working with individuals and building that community support around the idea of water quality improvement. So I think for me as a river basin coordinator, when I was one, what I really noticed is that sometimes you have to start at the education and outreach level. We do a lot of events around the state, working with different audiences, everything from the state fairs to working with a local watershed group to you know a county festival. But we take that opportunity to go to these places and start that conversation with people, help them understand what is non-point source pollution. I would say probably most people have not really thought about runoff pollution as its own thing instead of a pollution source that comes out of a strip, like a pipe or something like that. So we start at that level, but it also depends on your audience. When we're working with, uh, you know, a health department or you're working with a community official or you're working with an area development district, sometimes you need to bring in a bit of that financial piece. Here is how a nature-based solution or a best management practice that we 
with 319 money can potentially implement in a watershed planning area can benefit your community. There are a lot of benefits to the practices that we put on the ground that are not just water quality benefits. There's water quantity benefits. There's education opportunities, uh, things having to do with property values. And so there's a lot of opportunity there. Most of these projects are mutually beneficial. So I think Steve used the phrase um, bridging that gap. It really is bridging gaps between programs. We have the ability to reach across programs, work with entities that water quality folks wouldn't normally interact with. And it really, the 319 program really is crucial for that. I want to talk about your careers specifically. And I know that, you know, you don't have 30 years to pull from here, but I'd, I'd like to know what you feel like so far in your career within this program are one or two of your biggest accomplishments. So Steve, I'd like to start with you. Um, what, what do you think you can kind of hang your hat on as, as one or two of the bigger accomplishments that you've had? Mm. Well, right now we're working on kind of the rewrite of our state non-point source management program plan. And while it's not done yet, uh, certainly I've been more involved than I sort of thought I might be um, kind of at the outset. And the way it's shaping up, I, I feel pretty proud of being involved in that process, kind of setting longer term goals for our program. Uh, we kind of are on a five-year review uh, schedule on that. And so, Jeff, you know, you were very involved in the 2012 draft of the plan as well as the 2018 revision. You, know, you see that we skipped, you know, we had an extra year in there. So it was kind of a six-year plan on that that original 2012 one. And now we're even longer than that out to this next one coming out in 2023. But uh, the goal is five years and and we're doing pretty well at trying to hit that by the end of the 2023 that we'll have the five-year update um, to the 2018 version of the plan. So uh, that's been a, an interesting process, very collaborative. Um, and, uh, you know, a document that guides our every day in the program, but we don't often think about it every day because it's just sort of our uh, kind of second nature. Uh, and so having to, th having to take that 30,000 foot view on some of the, some of the work that we do and then enshrine it in, in a document is difficult, uh, but challenging and fun, I, I, you know, I think can go hand in hand in this case. And, and that's what it's been for me. So that's one, uh, I would say is going to be, uh, one that I'm certainly proud of in the future. Another is some of, you know, honestly, the education and outreach work that, uh, I've been involved in, which, you know, when I started the job, I, I thought of it like, you know, I, when I was in fisheries, there was things that we did where, you know, you're, you're checking on a fish population, you're, you're writing down numbers, you're entering it into a database and then not really doing much with it afterwards. You, it, it sort of advises your management decisions on how to manage a fishery, but not a lot changes, uh, year on year with the fisheries program. And so when I got into water quality work, I was realizing that it was, uh, you know, I was able to see products start, you know, go through planning process. Uh, get established, uh, you know, have stuff go on on the ground as far as like installing practices and then see that endpoint, whether it was a water quality improvement uh, or, or, you know, whatever. On the education and outreach side of things, we get to celebrate that process and, and show that to the world. And so, you know, I think about what I do now versus what I did in fisheries, almost more like cabinet making and sales like it's kind of a weird analogy but you know i get to i get to order the wood you know as far as like plan out uh what i'm gonna build 
watch it get built, you know, facilitate that or participate in that, and then uh, put it on the showroom floor and celebrate it with our with our partners and colleagues. And so that's kind of how I think about some of our water uh, quality practice work. We are a demonstration program. You know, the 319 program in general is rooted in that demonstration uh, ability. So it's it's showing through a specific watershed project, you know, what others can do to help improve their water uh, water quality, even if we aren't involved. And uh, that education and outreach piece there is something that uh, I really take pride in and, and really enjoy seeing, uh, you know, the news stories come out or or the press releases or or whatever or coverage on the local news. And so uh, that kind of a thing um, catches my interest. And I, I really appreciate uh, being able to work through the process from from start to finish on that. Uh, it's interesting, Steve, that you mentioned uh, more big picture planning type work and not specific outcomes. And, and I think that that's uh, that's interesting. And I'll just make a, a, a point that both the 319 program and the TMDL program are set up where they will have uh, timeframes to kind of come back and, and sort of plan at that big picture level. That stuff's very important. I was privileged enough to, to be able to help out and do that work for the 319 program when I was at Iowa. Um, it's very informative and it, and it provides a level of flexibility as you continue to move through the program as we get more and different technologies for monitoring and, and, the, and uh, new pollutants emerge as uh, more important uh, to try to consider. So these are not static programs. These are programs that can change with the times um, and taking that collaborative approach is really important. So really good points that you brought up there about planning. Michaela, what about you? What would you say are one or two of the projects that you've been involved with that you would say that you're most proud of at this point in your career in the 319 program? Yeah, hmm. this is kind of hard to narrow down, even though my career here has been relatively short. But I think the first one that I will mention is also a, a very high level planning type of goal. And what it was, we just finished a essentially a list of strategic goals for the next five years outside of our typical non-point source five-year management plan, uh, where we got all of the Bayesian coordinators together and all of our technical advisors together who handle the technical aspects of our 319 grants. Um, and we sat down in a room and we really nailed down, what have we been successful at? What areas do we need to grow? What partnerships should we pursue further? And so we sat down in that room and came up with a list of basically goals, partnerships, and a plan for how we can achieve those and incorporate them into our non-point source five-year management plan. I think I would say my second big accomplishment is the watershed plan that is up and coming in the Tug Fork region with West Virginia and Kentucky. That's in an area that has been historically underserved in the state of Kentucky in terms of we haven't had a river basin coordinator in the area for about 12 years for one reason or another. Um, but We've been able to go into the watershed, establish some capacity. There's a group there with a lot of interest. They've started volunteer monitoring. They've been working with both states to do things like tire cleanups and trash cleanups, working with their local communities. And now they're taking their steps to write a watershed plan that will eventually be a multi-state watershed plan. And so the little level of commitment and planning and partnership involved with a multi-state watershed plan is really impressive. Very proud to see that group come to fruition. 
want to ask you guys for your final thoughts. Anything that has come to mind as we've had this conversation that you'd like to, to, to talk about, uh, kind of to wrap this up, any kind of final message maybe to uh, the people that are listening out there that maybe want to get involved in a, in a project like this? What's the best way? Maybe try to find a volunteer monitoring program or find a local watershed project or a friends of group or any kind of final thoughts like that. And Steve, I'll start with you. Sure. Yeah. I, I think, um, you know, as we've talked about, partnerships make watershed work happen. Uh, without a strong partnership, if it's just the state kind of dictating top down uh, in these types of programs and settings, it doesn't work all that well. You know, we can we can scratch at it, but uh, that local involvement um, really makes it easier to accomplish watershed scale goals, which are often, you know, outside the reach of any one organization or any one uh, person, landowner, whatever in particular. So how to foster those good partnerships or how to, you know, make sure that you are cognizant of, of the watershed efforts in your area, stay involved, um, you know, tr thirst for information, I guess, is is maybe a, a good way to put it where, you know, we want to have those, those citizens that are engaged that are asking questions. Um, those tend to turn into good board members on like watershed uh, planning boards or, or, you know, sort of, we have so, uh, soil and water conservation district system. Uh, if you're, if you're able to participate in those as a commissioner, uh, those are often where we, you know, make our watershed projects happen at the, at the county scale uh, with those soil and water uh, conservation districts. The, the farmers, the, the board members, the participants and all those are aging rapidly too. Uh, and we're not seeing as much uptake in younger communities, younger uh, members of our communities in willingness to, to do some of this. And so, you know, as a relatively young person myself, I, I find the need to call upon, you know, kind of our generation to uh, take that torch up, take that, uh, the baton during the relay race. Um, because there are some people in, in older generations that have been on those boards and running those projects for a long time. They're just sitting there with their hand outstretched with a baton and it waiting for somebody to pick it up. And, and so, uh, getting, getting our, our folks a little younger on the watershed, uh, planning and implementation side is just going to help carry those projects forward. Because, you know, as I said, when we talked about, you know, working in watersheds, some of these are 15, 20 plus year projects. We've had a couple of projects that have existed since the start of the 319 program that we're still chipping away at, depending on how big they are. And so, you know, it really needs to be an intergenerational uh, a process. And so, um, you know, if you want to get involved, please consider, uh, you know, joining a watershed uh, board or, or something. Um, you know, we have a lot of different opportunities like that in Iowa. Some of them require, uh, you know, winning an election and some of them don't. So, you know, uh, reach out to your local groups that are working in, in watersheds and water quality and find a place that you can fit in. And maybe it is that volunteer monitoring piece. Sometimes it's just going to a field day and expressing interest and learning a little bit more about the water in your area and what's being done to clean it up. Uh, but either way, that fosters, you know, better partnerships down the road and that better partnership makes for better projects that end up being more successful in the long run. And Michaela, what about you? Any final thoughts uh, about your work in Kentucky, the work across the country uh, and the work of the 319 program? Yeah, I think at its core, my advice would be get involved in your communities. You know, what's happening in your community? Do you have environmental projects, water quality projects? What groups exist there? Stay informed on who's doing what in your community and get involved. Like 
you know, Steve was saying, take on the baton. Our younger generation needs to step up and be ready to take on some of the work that's coming our way. And some of that work can be really fun. It's not all work and no play. Um, another thing I think would be to, you know, find partners to help you accomplish whatever it is you're wanting to accomplish, whether that be a water quality goal, or even if you have a water quantity goal, find partnerships to help you get that done. And working with the 319 program will help you find those partnerships, help you find funding sources, even outside of 319, and help you locate and identify some really innovative practices to help you achieve the goals that you have set. So if you don't have a local group working in your area, I'm sure that your state has a contact for your 319 program and they can help you get involved in some way, whether that be through volunteer monitoring or another watershed group nearby. Great. Good stuff from both of you. Thank you so much for your time. Steve and Michaela, I really appreciate and thank you for being on the Clean Water Pod. Thanks for having us, Jeff. Thank you. All right, that's episode seven and the final piece of the Clean Water Act for this season. Our next and final episode of season one will have a special guest to talk about the challenges of the next 50 years of the Clean Water Act and what can be accomplished. Plus, you will hear from all of our previous guests on their feelings about what is the biggest challenges in their program in the next 50 years. If you have any questions about this or future episodes, please get in touch. You can find us on Twitter at CleanWaterPod or send me an email at CleanWaterPod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you, what questions you have, and what you'd like to hear on the pod. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>